You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing for Real Vision. I'm Max Weethy. It's Monday, July 6th, and I'll be sitting down with Ed Harrison. Before that, let's get over to Peter Cooper with today's news and highlights. Thanks, Max. I know you and Ed are going to talk about the Fed and the stock market, but first, I want to discuss a recent acquisition that's already making waves. Warren Buffett is back in the game. Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway announced yesterday that it's buying key gas transmission and storage assets from Dominion Energy. Berkshire is fronting $4 billion in cash and assuming $5.7 billion of Dominion's debt. So the total value of the transaction is roughly $9.7 billion. And of course, the ink isn't dry yet. The deal is expected to close sometime in Q4. And what does Berkshire get in return for this nearly $10 billion price tag? Well, several key subsidiaries. Questor Pipeline, Carolina Gas Transmission, Iroquois Gas Transmission, and of course, Dominion Energy Transmission. These subsidiaries amount to over 7,700 miles of natural gas transmission lines, roughly 20.8 billion cubic feet of transportation capacity per day, as well as natural gas storage of over 900 billion cubic feet. But if you're thinking Dominion got fleeced, think again. JP Morgan estimated that the EBITDA of all of these assets is only about $1 billion, and Berkshire paid almost 10 times that. So it's not exactly like Buffett is buying the Dominion's prized jewels for a song. Plus, the divestiture fits with Dominion's goals of going carbon neutral by 2050, as well as shoring up its balance sheet. Dominion announced its plans on using up to $3 billion of the cash to repurchase shares, which it expects will grow earnings per share by 10 to 11%. And it stressed that Berkshire's assumption of the debt will be pivotal in maintaining its credit rating, which currently standing at triple B is one downgrade away from being junk. The Berkshire Dominion transaction wasn't the only big deal announced yesterday, by the way. Uber agreed last night to acquire Postmates for $2.7 billion in stock. It's first wave of consolidation in the food delivery space, so it's an important story as well. But I wanted to cover the Dominion deal because of its significance. Warren Buffett has been sitting on the sidelines for so long. He's been sitting on a massive $137 billion in cash, and up until now, he's been very reluctant to deploy his war chest. But now it looks like the Oracle of Omaha is finally pulling the trigger. And with that, let's go back to Max and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks for that, Peter. So, Ed, how are you doing? How was your holiday weekend? Oh, well, uh, more to the point, why are you wearing my shirt? <laughs> I wear the shirt every time. I'm a tremendous suck up and brown nose, so just trying to look just like you. Uh, well, you're, you're doing a great job, I have to say. It, it, it was a good weekend, and I hope that yours was good. I didn't go out. I just went uh, for some bike rides. That's about it, but it was very relaxing. Well, glad to hear that. Well, I know that you wanted to first start things off with a little bit of breakdown of some of the last week's content. Um, you wanted to talk about the D. Smith and Peter Atwater piece. Now, Peter is 
I like to call him, he's the sentiment master. And sentiment seems to be the only thing that matters at this moment in time. So I think that is a fantastic piece for us to start off the week with. What did you take away from that? Yeah, uh, that, that's a good breakdown there. I thought it was uh, the hidden gem in the last week. And he does a great job, Peter Atwater, masterfully of putting together the economics and the psychology, I would say, uh, of the, the time and uh, giving us a sense of not just what's happening in the economy, but what some of the more socioeconomic psychological factors are that are there. Now, you know, I, I don't necessarily buy into some of the longer term things, you know, uh, that's all predictive about uh, how, pe you know, in terms of what I would say is populism and things of that nature and how that's going to play out. But I think he was very good in terms of understanding some of the cross currents that are buffeting people in terms of inequality, in terms of the market going up forever as a result of Fed liquidity, while the real economy is stagnating. And what that what that does from a psychological perspective, especially in in the in um, in view of where we've come from, you know, in terms of 2007, 2008, and that crisis, and people really not having caught up at that at this point in time, and then being slammed by the pandemic. Well, I think looking back at 2007 and 2008 is interesting because it shows the importance of financial assets in terms of inequality. It's the last time, obviously, besides March and April, where financial assets took a took a major hit. And that's the last time that inequality has kind of closed its gaps, because that is what produces so much of the wealth and so much of the wealth accumulation for the top percentage of people who are, are really widening that gap at this moment in time. So... You know, he he used a phrase. I prices go up. I think it's you know somewhat related to uh, to Dave Portnoy's recent you know yeah. sayings about stocks only go up, stocks only go up, and uh, at least today uh, that that seemed to be the case, and and for the past few weeks. Um, but it's the consequences of that. You know, by the way, I I think it's interesting you mentioned Dave Portnoy because as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself. People, ordinary people want to buy in. Maybe that's why there's this certain uh, mania, if you will, within these penny stocks and so forth, is that people think, you know, the rich are getting richer because stocks are going up. Why can't we uh, get into that? Why can't we join into the party and be a participant in some capacity? So I think there's some of that going on. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to say that I thought I'm somewhat at odds with Peter Atwater on uh, when you go back to 2007, 2008. I think that for a long period of time, a very large swath of the American population has felt like we haven't uh, joined in the party. Okay, so we were able to join in the party, everyone, even though there was this income uh, gulf that was happening because there was a huge buildup of debt and because a lot of people, you know, bought into the mortgage bubble. Uh, they were able to look like you know they were they were making out, and then when that all popped, then suddenly there was nothing left, and the and the average American, the bottom fifty percent, bottom seventy percent, whatever it might be, understood that actually not only do we have this debt that's saddling us, but we haven't been making out from an income perspective. Most of the gains have been going to the top ten percent, and. 
And the thing that I think is important is, is, is that that's a real feeling that people had. Now, Donald Trump came onto the scene and he used that to move it in a different direction. And people have gone in that same direction. But it doesn't mean that those people uh, who felt that way in 2008 uh, and in 2012 didn't still feel that way in 2016. It's just that their their views were channeled in a different direction. You know, they were focused in the way that Donald Trump has focused them. So when Peter Atwater was talking about, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, Me Too and all the rest of these other movements that have been coming around as a part of this, this sense of inequality, I would also say that Donald Trump's arrival in the scene is a manifestation of that as well. It's just been channeled in a different way than these other movements. But they're all part and parcel of a whole package where people feel like they're not, they're not getting what's coming to them, that they're not sharing in the American dream that they thought that they were sharing it. Well, you could argue that it's part of the reason that it seems to shift is because each group you know, there it's a big group, you know, 70%, 80% of the population that's not participating in this. I think you sent me over a report before this that was looking at the percentage of income um, by the, 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 basically the cohort you're in, and that over 50% of the income is going to uh, the top 10% of earners, and it's like 13% is going to the bottom 50% of earners. So it really is a large cohort of people who are in that camp and you just kind of get a, a, a shot, a dose. Like to a lot of people, the election of Barack Obama was change. And then right. the people who that was changed to, they got they got a dosage of what they needed, what they were looking for. And then a whole another group of people didn't get that same dosage of, of of change. And that's why you get Trump. And and women didn't get their dose of change. And you have me too. And, and now we're in um, sort of another phase where another group that was left behind, um, or or really maybe it's a reset of that same group from, from back in 2008. Um, well, and- the way I would put it, by the way, Max, is I would say that, you know, chain, the change that Barack Obama represented wasn't really uh, change in terms of uh, a holistic uh, change. It was like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. When people think about 2008 and nine, mostly they think about uh, Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner and Ben Bernanke, right? Uh, so they're thinking, let's get these banks uh, up and running and, let, and let's do the same thing over again. All the banks that uh, exist now that people talk about, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citi, those are the same uh, perpetrators from, from that crisis. So nothing's changed. So that change really didn't change the system. And it goes to the chart that you were talking about. I'm looking at this chart right now. This is from the Rosenberg report. It's a special report that Rosenberg has done on what he thinks is the real missing piece in all of this, which he thinks is in November, there's a potential, a very high likely probability that the Democrats will sweep. And the reason that he thinks that they will sweep is is partly because of that chart that you're talking about, where it shows the share of the income going to the top 1% versus the bottom 50%. And it goes back all the way to 1913. And you can see that, you know, post-World War uh, II, the, the, uh, the um, top 1% was getting less. And it's sort of uh, went down to like 1975, 1976, and then the whole thing shifted 
massively in the other direction. You can see there's a blue line going down, which shows you know the bottom 50%, and then the red line going up. And I think that, that this, this chart that you're talking to it, uh, was still in effect in two, after 2007, 2008. It was still in effect after 2016, right? I mean, even after the tax cuts uh, that we saw, the, uh, you know, the, the tax reform, it was called, it's still the exact same thing. So when COVID, the COVID crisis hit in 2020, that same cohort still felt the same way. Well, it's it's about what they did with those tax benefits. I think in that same report, there was a number quoted, um, and it was like a trillion dollars in buybacks or something, like a billion dollars in buy. I, I forget the exact number, but it was it was a thousand to four was the ratio in what was spent on buybacks as compared to what was spent on bonuses paid out to workers. What you would you know quantify as going to the elites and going to the people, which is what we're seeing play out right now on the ground. I'd like to ask, you know, we do have a strong uh, contingent of our audience based outside of the United States. What does it mean for the Democrats to sweep? It's just the president, right? Right. Uh, What it means for the Democrats to sweep, I think what uh, David Rosenberg is saying it means is it means uh, that uh, the potential for uh, modern monetary theory like uh, uh, policies to be implemented. Now, when I think about modern monetary pol- theory, I think more of a economic framework. So it's the framework that is justifying uh, activities that you would not normally undertake, but because you have a justification to do so, then you can't. So what he's saying is that uh, framework is going to justify uh, a lot more spending. Tom, he there's not going to be a full embrace of modern monetary theory in the sense that deficits do matter, uh, and therefore there's going to be a taxing. It, the inequality is actually going to be uh, is going to be taken care of by uh, shrinking the pie for the top one percent while increasing the take for the bottom. So it's not just about MMT; it's about uh, you know closing that gap. And he says that that's bad for stocks over the longer period of time. That's what the democratic sweep means. It means implementing policies that are, in a sense, anti-capital, because capital gains taxes will go up, uh, wealth taxes will go up, things of that nature. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Now, my question is, you know, we've had things that have been hits on earnings before. Why is it that tax, the, the fact that it's it's by law, potentially that earnings are going to take a hit. Why is that going to affect stock prices when just outright you know, drops in earnings have not really had the effects on stock prices? Is it the certainty that we know that, you know, yeah, the, they, the Republicans could retake the House in the midterm elections, but the chances of them reversing any of these sorts of tax hikes is pretty negligible. And thus, we know that it's at least four years. Is it just that certainty that comes from these things being implemented by law versus the uncertainty that we have right now that makes you think it'll actually play out in prices? Yeah, I think that uh, it's just a a theory by uh, uh, Rosenberg. It's an interesting theory, 
but it goes to some of the other charts that you know I teed up for today that I was showing you uh, with regard to the Axios piece. So yeah. I, I'm not really, uh, I don't really think that it's necessarily the case that um, this will cause any sort of uh, overall downdrift in terms of stocks. I'm just looking at this, uh, uh, what he's talking about, but he's thinking about the earnings drag on potential sectors, you know, uh, energy sector being one of the drags, you know, we're talking about regulation and things like that, less so for industrials, less so for telecommunications, less so for um, consumer discretionary. So you could look at it as a relative value play from perhaps a regulatory perspective. But when it comes to the tax perspective, I'm, I'm less uh, sanguine about that necessarily being the outcome. On the other hand, with regard to Axios, I think it was interesting when you look at the change in S&P 500 annual EPS estimates uh, uh, through six months, the number is the worst over a six-month period that we've ever seen uh, since they have the data. I'm looking at the data goes back to about 1999 or something like that. So minus 28.6% uh, EPS. So despite cutting expectations for companies' earnings by the most in history and the revenue uh, by a huge amount, Wall Street analysts are still increasingly bullish on the overall direction of the stock market. Why? Uh, you know, the, the answer is the Fed. So if the Fed is in there doing what they're doing, and that's causing Wall Street analysts to be bullish, even though EPS is going down, and we know that the market's going up, why is it the case then that what David Rosenberg is saying about a democratic sweep is definitely going to be negative for stocks? Uh, I think that that's not necessarily the case. Well, that's that's kind of my question is that these earnings, the, the times that basically how long it's going to take for us to, quote, get back to normal or return to where we were pre-crisis is an unknown. But if the Democrats are able to push through legislation, you can almost guarantee that it will be in place for four years. Three, you know, let's say they get it done by one year into uh, the you know proposed Joe Biden uh, first term, um, then then you know you're going to have three years of it. Whereas this, there's at least hope that it's really only going to be a one-year thing. And I think that that's part of it. And it's the uncertainty, which I actually brings it back to the Atwater D. Smith piece, which is nothing is more or less uncertain than it's ever been. It's our perception of that uncertainty has changed. Right. Um, you know, earnings are never certain. But, but you know, the thing is, is, is yeah, I think that the uh, going back to Axios, I, I had three charts that I thought were really interesting in Axios. Uh, the second one was the Fed chart. I think that the certainty comes from that second chart, which is the total assets of the Federal Reserve in trillions of dollars. And what you see in that chart is the numbers from the financial crisis in 08, you know, starting out about, you know, 800 million, 800 billion, then going up to 2 billion and then steadily rising to four, over four uh, during uh, the Obama years. And then suddenly during this COVID thing, spiking up to 7.1 billion. So that massive vertical uh, leap has caused people to say, I don't care if earnings are going down 28.6% in this year. It's only this year, as you were saying, Max, and the Fed's got my back. There's no reason for us to think that uh, this is going to last. Uh, this year's earnings, in terms, when you think of um, you know a, a, a DCF discount of cash flow model of earnings, 
really it's only 6% of, of a company's earnings for this year. Maybe the first two years is 10% of the earnings. So give me a 10% hit, which you've gotten uh, to a certain degree, and, and that's it. And then we can go back to business. So I think the Fed is giving people the certainty that they need uh, to, to continue to get into that market. So we actually got a question in the comments on, on an RVDB recently, which is related to this is what does how does that seven point one trillion dollars make its way into I think the market that most people are asking about is the equity market. What is your take on how QE, how the central bank buying assets, but specifically, I don't think anybody is saying that they're buying stocks at this moment in time. There are some people who have thrown out, uh, I saw you know, some legal language in the uh, is BlackRock um, agreement that they made to open up their account there that says they can technically buy stocks. but. Um, I, I don't see how it makes its way into the stock market. Is it just purely the psychological effect of seeing that $7.1 trillion makes people uh, have a greater risk appetite? Or is there some sort of direct mechanism where that money is making its way into the stock market? You can call it displacement, and, and you can also call it psychology. Uh, for instance, in QE 1, 2, and 3, during the QEs, even though the purported uh, nature of QE is to, to lower uh, um, interest rates. Actually, during QE, interest rates went up. And why is that? It's because the psychological impact of the Fed's buying and the support for the economy caused people to therefore believe in a brighter future. And brighter futures are ones not where the uh, the interest rates going down because the central bank is forced to keep them down lower for longer. It's one where actually interest rates go up, that the Fed needs to tighten more aggressively going forward. So there's a huge psychological impact uh, to say that the economy is going to get better going forward and, and the, the Fed's got your back. And as a result of that, you therefore have a risk on uh, behavior. What's more is is, is that uh, to the degree that the Fed is playing in certain markets and that and and uh, distorting price signals there, it's going to cause people uh, who are fleeing those markets to go to other markets. And therefore, there's a displacement effect. So I think a lot of it is very indirect. There's no direct impact uh, from the Fed buying the assets. It's more that the Fed's uh, actions are causing people to believe that uh, the good times can continue to go on. Uh, ironically, doesn't that sort of challenge the Fed omnipotence narrative? If in the market that they say they're trying to cause this thing to happen, free market forces can overpower that? Uh, yeah, it does. And, you know, so it gets to the last uh, uh, thing that I was looking at in terms of the Axios uh, piece that came out today. This is from D Dion Rabuin. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, he's their uh, markets guy. And his his point is that twice as many unemployment claims have come out as unemployed people. Uh, and, and that's kind of strange if you think about it, because uh, – if the market is rallying on the back of all of this Fed liquidity, and at the same time there are twice as many claims as unemployed people, and we have this increase in COVID infections, which makes it more likely that those claims will become permanent or semi-permanent rather than temporary, then you would expect by, as I always say, the September-October timeframe that we are going to see a, a bit of a, of a reckoning between reality 
and uh, hope, which is the, what the Fed is giving you. The Fed is giving you the hope that they are omnipotent, as you were saying, uh, but then the reality hits in terms of the actual data. So where I think the rubber hits the road is over the next two months. The first piece of data that comes out uh, is, you know, what happens from a stimulus perspective with the unemployment, enhanced unemployment, which runs out at the end of July. What happens also with regard to the states that are shutting down now in terms of the death counts, uh, in terms of the consumer spending, in terms of the business openings in the next month or two? And then finally, what happens to EPS uh, estimates as we move into the period of um, 2021? Uh, you know, because I think that there are a record number of companies that have withdrawn their EPS estimates. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for the number right now, but um, you know, the price targets uh, through Thursday. This is what. Um, Axios was saying through Thursday, 185 S&P 500 companies had withdrawn or confirmed a previous withdrawal of annual EPS guidance for fiscal two, uh, year 2020 or uh, fiscal year 2021. And just 49 have issued EPS guidance for Q2 2020. That goes away, in my belief, by Q4. So when September, October hits, that's when we'll know uh, what the guidance is. And that's when I think uh, all of this accumulated data will start to move it, uh, from, you know, beats to uh, to misses. And, and that's when we'll find out whether or not the Fed really is omnipotent. Can they continue to keep a markets elevated or uh, will the data actually shine through at some point in time? But what if they do the classic sort of trickery thing where they just put in ridiculously low estimates? We've seen it time and time again where in the middle of a quarter, a company will pull back their estimates, lower the estimate, and they will have beaten the previous, beaten the previous estimate, but they're still missing off of what it was to start the quarter and the stock rallies. So it drops when they revise but they beat the revised estimates and it ends up bringing them back above positive. So there are tools that can be used to sort of trick the market because it is so much so psychological. What do you think about the potential for just more of that and more you I, actually in that same Axios report, it wasn't just that they cut the EPS estimates. They also raised price targets. Right. So yes. How do you square that? Yeah, well, the only way that you square that is is uh, through exactly how you're talking about it, and that is uh, price earnings multiple expansion. I mean, and the question therefore is, in a, in a world in which you have the 10-year below 1%, when you have the Fed saying that they're going to keep rates at 0% for the foreseeable future, uh, is, is that a world in which price earnings multiples uh, should expand? Um, should they expand because the discount rate is uh, is lower, or is there an offset in terms of growth that is obvious as a result of the need to have a zero rates over the longer term? I think that you know there's a wash there. So when the the company says uh, our our earnings are going to be X, and then they lower them, and then they raise them up slightly, and they beat that lowered target, if their price goes up, their multiple 
has to go up by a lot. And that's what we've seen. We've seen a massive earnings multiple expansion. And the question, therefore, is, is how long can that multiple expansion last? When you look at uh, the multiple, the forward multiple, it's 21.8 times S&P's 12-month uh, forward uh, multiple, whereas the index's five-year average is 16.9 times. And the 10-year average is 15.2 times. So right now, we're at a forward earnings multiple level that is very high. So to the degree that you get uh, misses, it's going to either have to go higher or stocks are going to have to go lower in order for uh, those numbers to come together. So that's why I believe that you know when we start seeing more companies issuing guidance, that guidance will feed through into the S&P 500 earnings numbers, and then people will have a much better sense of you know, is this sustainable or, uh, or or do we still need to have hope and liquidity in order for this to continue forward? Yeah, I'd have to agree that that earnings really are the bridge between the, the reality on the ground and prices. Because um, as of right now, that seems to be what everybody's talking about is that disconnect and, and earnings and their estimates are what we need. But as of right now, there are no estimates. So that is arguably the reason why there is this disconnect because that normal bridge that exists between the economic realities on the ground and the financial world has been taken down um, at, at an unprecedented level. Yeah, and I think that um, you know the, the hope is, is, is that when we get out of the other side, the V-shaped recovery can continue and those earnings will come back in a positive way. The worry should be that that doesn't happen, especially in a world in which COVID infections are increasing, and therefore, when you start to uh, you know do a bottoms up uh, analysis and 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 put all of those numbers into the S and P 500, you come out with a number that just uh, doesn't wash with the uh, the top down number that people have been doing, and therefore, you have to take the S and P 500 uh, earnings number down, and then either you have more multiple expansion or uh, prices have to come down as a result of that. Well, it sounds like viewers are going to have to play the waiting game and see, first of all, what those earnings are going to be, and then secondly, what the market's appetite is for expanded multiples if, as a lot of people think, those estimates are going to come down. Yeah, that's, that's exactly where I am on this, Max, as well. So uh, I think it's a waiting game. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, two months, uh, could be three months, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Well, we got nothing better to do. So until uh, until that time, Ed, we'll, we'll just be here debating it. Excellent. Well, good to talk to you. And uh, let's do it again soon. All right. Only if you get a new shirt. <laughs> or you, on the other hand. We'll see who breaks first. All right, Ed. Talk to you later. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.